Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Smell Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Boateng. This week, join me in listening to a conversation with Stephanie McGowan, who's pregnant and dealing with both parosmia and gestational diabetes. She's from Youngstown, Ohio, and at the time of our recording, she was 36 weeks pregnant. In our conversation, we discuss the challenges she has faced dealing with both being pregnant and having parosmia at the same time, plus gestational diabetes, how she handles the parosmia smells in her daily life, how it impacts her interactions with her family, her cooking, her pregnancy, and much, much more. Our interview was recorded in April 2022. Let's listen to the interview. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to the Smell Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me. So to get started, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Like, where are you from and where do you currently live? I am from Youngstown, Ohio. I live in a little suburb outside of Youngstown, which is Camel, Ohio. And um, I'm 38 years old and I am currently 36 weeks pregnant. Oh, so you're about ready to have a baby. <laughs> very soon. Very, very soon. I'm, I'm honestly had a little false labor episode um, this past week. Um, but as it turns out, everything's good so far and, and no no dilation or anything yet. So still, still hopefully I'm, I'm hoping to make it to May. I, my other son is born in January, so birthday parties kind of suck for him. <laughs> so hopefully I can get a winter. nicer... Yes, yes. So I'm like really looking forward to having like a nice weather baby that we can mm. have maybe outdoor parties. So I'm like, let's go a little further. Let's, you know, because based on our weather right now in Ohio, it's pretty crappy. So yeah, that's, um, it's interesting that you are due so soon. I'm sure it's both you want to wait as long as possible and then also just be done with it. I, I went through I, that last year. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You know, my first pregnancy was so easy. I, I mean, I had a little bit of a rough labor, but my pregnancy itself was beautiful. And this has been um, the just craziest and worst experience all the way through my pregnancy. I mean, thankfully, my child's healthy. Everything's good. I'm grateful for that. But definitely ready to be done. <laughs> well, yeah, let's kind of dive into that. That's the reason that we're talking today. So can you tell us, the listeners, um, what is your smell disorder story? What's going on? So I um, I got COVID in December. I actually was diagnosed um, December 15th. And my last day of quarantine was Christmas Day. So that kind of sucked because we were quarantined all through Christmas, couldn't see family, nothing. Um, and we pretty much um, both, all three of us, myself, my husband, and my four-year-old son were all um, diagnosed with COVID. I had it the worst, beings that I'm pregnant and immune compromised. So I did have to receive the um, monoclonal antibodies, which definitely helped. I am currently an unvaccinated as I was kind of you know, off and on, on as far as how I felt about it. And I still am, but I definitely knew I wasn't doing it while pregnant. Um, anyhow, I lost my sense of smell a couple days into to, um, having COVID. And, but I gained as, as well as my um, husband did too. My son, he's four. So kind of hard to tell. We kind of had some suspicions, but he's a very picky eater as it is. 
but he was acting a little different about some of the stuff he really normally likes, like peanut butter and jellies and, you know, the safe foods that he has. So we're kind of unsure. We don't know if he lost a little of it as well. Um, but I gained mine back probably before the end of January. And, uh, but then I got sick again at the beginning of February and I didn't take a COVID test because I just assumed, well, there's no way I have COVID again because I just had it at Christmas. So, um, you know, it was like a sinus infection, got over that. And then it was the end of February, beginning of March, I got diagnosed with um, gestational diabetes, which is just basically diabetes while you're pregnant. Um, <clears throat> and it was about a week into that <laughs> of dealing with that and, and being on insulin three times a day that I started noticing odd smells. It started with the toothpaste. Um, I went through seven toothpastes, um, different brands, different types, kids, toothpaste, adult toothpaste. Um, and they all tasted, it wasn't so much that they didn't taste good to where I could blame it on just regular pregnancy taste aversion it was that they all tasted the same and tasted terrible. And that's, you know, and then my perfume, one of my perfumes smelled different. And then I kept smelling this smell in my house and they, it was all the same smell though. And I just, I'm like thinking mm. that I'm going crazy. There's something there. And then it dawned on me. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'm having a, a, an adverse side effect to the insulin or to the diabetes. So I called my dietitian. Um, who has guided me with with this whole diabetic um, experience. And she just basically said, no, that's not typically, you know, what you would deal with. She's like, and you've only really been on insulin for a week and a half. She goes, most diabetics, you know, they do, they can receive some kind of nerve damage, but that's after years of being a diabetic. And, you know, mm. that it can cause them to have you know, a, an odd taste, but it's not like that. It's more or less like she described it as like dyscasia, which is kind of like the metal taste. And, and I had that actually with my first pregnancy. Um, so I knew it wasn't that it wasn't that food tasted. It wasn't that I had a metal taste in my mouth just randomly. Cause with that, usually I ate more to get rid of that taste. Um, and it wasn't that food tasted like it was supposed to taste, but it just didn't taste good. It was that everything tasted the same. Everything had this foul, indescribable taste. So basically I started Googling because it was just getting worse and worse and starting to concern me. And, you know, it finally, after a lot of Googling, it took me Googling the whole toothpaste scenario where a whole blog forum kind of popped up and, and led me to parosmia because I would have never, ever obviously known what to call it. And once I started reading everyone else's like testimonies of what they were going through, I mean, it was just describing exactly what I was going through, what I was experiencing, the toothpaste, the perfumes, the, the rancid smells. And so that's kind of where I, where I was at. So what What's was that at? like for you when you finally went online and you found the word parosmia and you figured out what you were dealing with? Um, was that comforting it was, or were you, it was were a relief. It was a relief to have, to not feel like I'm going crazy, you know, and, and not think that it's something worse that could be, you know, especially being pregnant, you're scared of everything. You're scared something's, you know, not right or something's going to hurt your child or, you know, so it was nice to just have 
I guess, a, a term to call it in a place where people can de- relate um, and you're not going crazy. But it was also more depressing because the more you're reading and the more you're seeing that people are dealing with this for how long and there's no there's no outlet for um, information or a cure or is it going to get better or is it not or is it going to get worse and I mean, I immediately joined like every parosmia group there is on Facebook and was just reading, reading, reading and researching and, you know, trying to. And then, of course, that sometimes is the worst thing you can do (laughs) is go to Google and, you know, see all the all the worst case scenarios. And it just, you know, and then you're hormonal because you're pregnant as it is. So it was it was very rough at first, very depressing. A lot of a lot of crying, a lot of freaking out. Um, thankfully, I have a very loving and, and supportive husband who kind of kept me calm and reassured me that, you know, no matter what, even if it doesn't go away, we'll figure it out. We'll work through it. And, you know, I can't cook in my house. I can't smell food for the most part. Most foods I can't smell because they'll just disgust and nauseate me. Um, so that's been a challenge as well. But Mostly it's just um, like I, I, when I found the pregnant with parosmia page on Facebook, I just I also realized how much worse it could be. And that's kind of why I wanted to reach out to you, because there are just so many more women with um, that are dealing with this at a lot worse of a capacity, especially based on where they're at in their pregnancies. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if you're in the beginning of your pregnancy and you're dealing with morning sickness or, and I can't remember the, the term for it, but there's that illness um, you might remember where you're, you're just really like you're throwing up constantly. It's, it's worse than just your average morning sickness. And some women deal with it yeah. throughout mm-hmm. their whole pregnancy. I forget what it's called, but I'm like, I couldn't imagine dealing with that as well as this. I mean, it's to the extent that women... Called- um, hyperemesis gravidarum. Correct. I, I just That's Googled it. it. I don't, I did yep. not have that off the top of my head. Yep. And I'm like, I couldn't imagine dealing with that. And like some of these women, like I said, they're, they're on feeding tubes to get mm-hmm. nourishment for themselves and their children. They're dropping 40 pounds during their pregnancy, you know, to where they're having to have pick lines in and things like that to, to hydrate and, it's just, I couldn't imagine as a mother, as especially a, a first time pregnancy and just, just, you know, the hormones, the imagine the uh, amount of emotions you go through as a pregnant woman already mm-hmm. and dealing with that. And that's why I think this is just so much more of a serious problem than it's, than it's being um, made aware of. So. Yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned that you were diagnosed with gestational diabetes and then also dealing with parosmia. So there's not a lot of safe food options for people that I've heard um, that are dealing with parosmia. So what is that like for you navigating this smell disorder where everything is disgusting, but also having gestational diabetes and, and trying to navigate sugar? It's been incredibly challenging. So my first week of gestational diabetes, it was, I went and I seen a dietitian and she explained to me how it all works and what it is. And you know, the short version, and I'm going to paraphrase just to, to not focus on that as much is basically, you know, my body's not producing enough insulin to, um, you know, take care of the glucose, the amount of glucose in my body. 
um, my son makes my unborn son makes his own insulin. So mm-hmm. at this point in, in pregnancy, because he has developed a pancreas and everything, so he's able to produce his own insulin. However, um, you know, it's also probably not enough for the amount of glucose in my body. So I can transfer glucose to him, but I can't transfer insulin to him. So mm-hmm. it's kind of very important to uh, to eat well and keep your levels low based on your diet as mm-hmm. it is like I can receive insulin shots to keep my insulin low, but my unborn child cannot. Mm. So his insulin, whatever he's making is what he's making. And if I have extra glucose in my blood, it's not only going through my bloodstream, it's going through his. But I can, like I said, I can take a shot to help lower mine. He can't. There's nothing he can do to keep his levels low, which puts him at risk of being overweight Um, you know, obviously, so me having a larger, giving birth to a larger, um, child, but also it, it puts strain on his, his newly developed pancreas and also can put him at risk for being a diabetic as an infant. So, you know, it's very, you know, to a degree, very serious and that's why they take it seriously. So I was very, I met with a dietitian so that I can learn not only how to, you know, give myself the insulin and what I should be doing, but also how to diet well. All that went out the window after this because, you know, I have to have X amount of carbohydrates per meal in order to also balance the amount of insulin I have to give myself. Otherwise, if I'm not eating the right amount of sugar, but I'm giving myself insulin, I could basically put myself at risk of my insulin going too low or Mm -hmm. my sugar, I'm sorry, my sugar going too low. And which could make me very lethargic, could possibly make me pass out, you know, things like that. So I have to try to regulate the right amount of sugar based on the amount of insulin I'm, you know, giving myself. So and now you add in half the foods I can't eat or the fact that um, mostly what and this is what most people have found to be safe is, is like your sweets. Well, that's fine and all because sweets obviously do give you sugar, but they don't fill you up. So I can eat fruit all day. I can eat fruit for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but it's not going to make me feel full, which is then going to make you just feel kind of hungry. And it's still not the um, right of amount of, of other nutrients that you need for the health of your child to nourish your child, like carbohydrates, you still do need, you need, um, protein, things like that. So it's really just dependent on like my biggest issue. My, my food aversions have mostly been towards like starchy things, breads, Mm -hmm. pastas, um, which I can't have a lot of anyway, but I can have some, and they do help with a giving me my, my carbohydrate level or my glucose level that I need as well as keeping me full, you know? So if that makes sense, I I don't know, but. Yeah, absolutely. So as you're talking, one thing that comes up to me is obviously the, there's so many appointments that you have during pregnancy to visit with like your OBGYN, the obstetrician, I believe is the person that you typically see. So when you're going to all of those appointments and stuff, and you're trying to explain to them what you're dealing with, what has been the response or or the experience for you trying to explain this to like your obstetrical team? So I did just I just touched on this with my doctor. Um, it's not been a great response. It's very you know. 
I was very nervous of this appointment because I kind of was, you know, I could be a little bit of a spitfire and I was, I was not sure how he was, this doctor particularly was going to react. I did give him a little bit of a hard time when I first became, you know, diagnosed with diet, the gestational diabetes and being scared about giving myself shots. You know, I'm not a fan of needles of any sort and, you know, so I felt like he already was going to look at me in a way of like, oh, here she goes overreacting again, you know, because I was a little. But then I, I, you know, I embraced the gestational diabetes. I did what I had to do. I met with a dietitian. I mean, my numbers were absolutely beautiful. I was keeping track of everything I was eating and I had it down. I mean, it's nothing to me now to give myself the shots and prick my finger and check my sugar and do all that. But now, like I said, you enter this. So I, I did speak to him about it. Um, he wasn't that receptive at all. He wasn't, he understood. He didn't offer me any advice other than talk to my um, PCP, my my primary care physician, basically. He wanted me to set up an appointment to talk with my primary care physician about it, which I'm like, okay. But my biggest concern with speaking with him, and I showed him my numbers because I showed him the the stark difference between the past two weeks to this up to that specific week where, you know, it had gotten to its worst level where I really was struggling finding anything that I could eat. And it wasn't so much that my numbers were high because they weren't because I wasn't eating enough for them to, but it was the amount of days that I didn't feel comfortable giving myself insulin um, because I, I wasn't sure that I was going to have enough caloric intake or carbohydrates to justify giving myself a shot of insulin. You know what I mean? So I was kind of showing him that, like, listen, this is what my concern is. I can handle the fact that this parosmia might not go anywhere for a while. I can handle the fact that I have gestational diabetes, but what I can't do is navigate between the two. What do I do on the days that I can't find anything to eat, or I just, I have no appetite because the thought of trying <clears throat> to figure out something to eat for lunch is, is just overwhelming, you know, and his, his response was basically just kind of, you know, in that case, just try to do what you can try. He wants me to try to eat three meals a day, which again is just his way of not understanding that this is just not something that's possible at times. It's not me fighting you. It's not me not wanting to. It's just that it's literally near impossible at, at some points to figure out what to eat or you try to eat something and it just makes you sick. Um, so that and also he did explain to me a little bit of how I can adjust my the amount, the dosage of insulin I give myself. So he said if I want to dial it down because I basically give myself a shot, it's it's like with a little pen and I can dial down the units, the amount of units of insulin I'm giving myself. If I don't feel that I've gotten enough caloric um, or carbohydrate intake, which I'm at least able to do that because I am very good with um, reading um, my amounts and, and, and making sure I'm checking the amounts of carbohydrates and stuff that I'm giving myself. So I don't know. Did I answer your question? I'm sorry. I rambled. <laughs> No, you you absolutely did. It just all sounds extremely frustrating, to be honest, to have to be dealing with gestational diabetes in the beginning and then also with what you can and can't eat. So 
adding to that, I did, I did actually end up because I have a little bit of a sinus infection again now with allergies and everything coming up. So I did actually visit my PCP, um, my primary care physician, and I did talk to him a little bit about it. He also offered there nothing, you know, just basically all he did say was that he feels positive that a lot of it may um, lessen once I give birth and, you know, I'm my hormone levels and everything are going back to normal, which at least with that, hopefully the gestational diabetes will go away, which will at least be one relief of this. You know, that's one thing I can look forward to. Um, But he had actually informed me that one of his office staff also dealing with it, like, other than that, he had no, you know, there's really just, obviously, there's no rhyme or reason. There's no cure. There's no real knowledge on it. And so I knew there really wasn't going to be much that was going to be said. I was just at least glad that they were receptive and didn't treat me like I was crazy. So mm, yeah, that's, a, that's what I hear a lot of other um, people have had to go through with their with their physicians. So I'm interested to know what kind of foods trigger the worst parosmic as episodes for you. So I feel like I have definitely improved a little. Um, I'm trying to be very mind over matter. Um, but also I feel like it's not so much the foods as much as how the foods are prepared. So there are certain things. Toast. I love toast. I cannot touch toast in any way, shape or form. I have been able to eat some breads, um, but again, they just have to be like kind of soft and and not toasted and it, or warm in any way, shape, or form. Like I couldn't eat anything oven baked or, you know, and a warm bread stick or anything like that. Um, that's probably my worst. The same with same with pastas. I cannot eat pasta warm. And anyway, so a lot of a lot of it for me is mostly temperature. Like I just I really try to not smell things. I try mm. not to smell them cooking, and I try not to um, eat them at an extremely hot temperature where you know obviously steam and aroma is coming off the food. I refuse to wear nose plugs, which is what I know a lot of people are doing, but I feel like personally, you know, they keep pushing this smell training thing, smell training. So to me, that's that's also smell training. If I'm forcing my, my nose to take in these scents and try to, I try to mentally remind myself of what they're supposed to smell like. And very few times has it worked or helped. Um, but regardless, I refuse. It just, it just kind of stinks literally because the smell is so bad. It's nauseating, you know, Mm -hmm. and even though I'm forcing myself to smell it, in hopes that it will get my olfactory nerves working or whatever be the case. It's, I still have to suffer with that smell that just won't go away for hours and hours and hours, or just, it kind of like hits the back of your throat and you just feel like you want to throw up. Mm. Um, Recently we made wedding soup. I started to make wedding soup. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's like a chicken broth based soup with greens and, um, you know, Is it typically carrot. Italian, like an yes, Italian yes. soup. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And um, so I wanted to make it, and I was really nervous. And like I said, we haven't been cooking much in the house. Um, 
And yeah, I, I as soon as the the chicken, because you know you boil chicken to kind of start the stock of the the or the base or whatever. And as soon as it started filling up the air, I had to take my, have my husband take over. I went in the back in my son's room. I had windows open, candles lit. I did end up putting a nose plug on because of the amount of time it takes to cook the soup, and it was just so nauseating, but. Mm-hmm. Nose plugs are painful. They're uncomfortable on top of that. So it was just, it was just suffering. And then, you know, of course I naturally did not want to eat it afterwards, even, even though I did force myself to, and I was able to get through some of it. Um, I maybe had like of the whole huge pot, I maybe had two bowls total, you know, that day and the next day. And that was just by sheer force because I didn't want to waste it and didn't want to think of what else I could possibly try to eat. So. Yeah. But like, yeah, the smell is very, it's it's very smell distinct for me. I feel like that's definitely probably 70% of the battle is, is once you smell the food and you get that smell in, you're just not going to be able to eat it. So yeah. trying to prevent that the best I can. And um, I've definitely forced myself through some foods that it's come out beneficial where the more I ate it. The, you know, the first few bites might have been rough, but then I was able to just keep coaching myself in my mind and just keep focusing on that. And as long as there's not a, again, like a hot smell or an aroma coming from it, I'm able to usually get through it. So mm. I'm curious to know, like in your day to day life, I don't know how much you're out and about these days, but so this is kind of a pre-pandemic question, but I I mean, people are starting to go out and about more often again. So in your day-to-day life, do you take the time to explain to people what you're going through with your smell disorder? Um, Only my close, my closest friends and family I have um, because it's been unavoidable. Um, And I do, I come from a big Italian family, so food is very prominent in our everyday lives. And, um, you know, it's, it's pretty much a smorgasbord at every event, birthday parties, whatever, you know, Easter's coming up obviously. So there'll be a lot of food and stuff and I'm, I'm very nervous about it, but they're all very supportive and understanding. So, you know, like my mother is making, um, Easter dinner this year. Cause obviously I can't cook. Um, so she kind of has been trying to work alongside with me on what kinds of things she can make that I know I could eat. Um, you know, certain things like I am able to eat sweet potatoes, so she'll make sure she makes those and, uh, vegetables obviously haven't been too much of a problem for me. I'm more nervous about, I think that's the hardest part about being out in public is the fear, the fear of what you're going to smell and how much it's going to affect you and Mm. whether or not you're going to be able to escape it. You know, like going out to a restaurant just isn't even isn't even uh, something that I want to do at this point for the fact that, I, I mean, it may mean me sitting there for an hour and a half with that absolute horrible smell on top mm. of not even necessarily being able to find something to eat. So it's mm. very isolating in a lot of ways. But like I said, I'm really grateful that I don't feel like... Um, I'm as worse as I've seen others um, have said they are. And I'm really trying to just push through it the best I can. Yeah. So this next question I ask all podcast guests, and there's no right or wrong answer. I always preface that. But I'm curious to know what you think about 
um, whether or not parosmia is a disability. Do you self-identify as having a disability due to your parosmia? It's, I guess, a kind of a yes and a no, because it's it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, there are far worse disabilities out there. I feel like this one, it's hard for me to say that, because I have been fortunate, again, enough to find ways to manage mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also witnessed just through the, the you know, the Facebook pages, um, a lot of people that aren't, and I feel for them. Um my biggest concern with this, and again, another huge motivator for me, um, was seeing the amount of kids that are now popping up with this mm-hmm. nine year olds, 11 year olds, 16 year olds. I fear for my own son who's four. And like I said, he's kind of at a very picky phase of eating right now. So it's hard to tell, but he has made comments about things smelling weird and he did have COVID. He had literally no other symptoms. But a lot of the times with COVID, um, that is, you know, for the people that are quote unquote asymptomatic, that is one of the few small symptoms they get is the loss of smell or the distortion of smell or whatever. Um, so I fear that. And then I also hope that, you know, I also think maybe he's heard us talking about it. So I try, been trying to dial down on me speaking about it in front of him because I don't want him to latch onto that and then start using that as, as an excuse for why he won't eat his peas today, you mm, know? Yeah. Um, but I think of that, I think of the kids that are going to go through this or that could possibly go through this. And, you know, if my unborn or my newborn child ends up with COVID and gets this and, and Matt, can you imagine how do you get a child to eat once they've that's happened to them they don't have the the developmental ability to understand that not all foods are going to taste like that you have to just keep trying until you find stuff you like that's why Mm -hmm. I feel like it's such an important thing because and then like when you when you speak on the older children that are nine years old or 11 years old or teenagers you know teenagers already have enough um Uh, chances of becoming depressed about things. Now you're giving them Mm -hmm. a disorder that is going to isolate them from their social peers. I I just, I see a bigger problem arising and I just hope that disability, not disability, they need to really put this as a priority um, as far as research goes. You know, not just COVID. This is obviously a long-lasting effect of COVID and I know it's been around for years, but we don't know anything about it from the from the aspect of it coming as a result of COVID. We don't know if there's mm-hmm. a way to reverse that effect because we don't understand how they don't understand how COVID is directly affecting it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I just, you know, it's a depressive. I mean, this is not just this is not just a physical disorder. It's a it's a emotional and a mental, you know, so I really feel like it's it should be looked at as a disability, maybe not to where you can receive disability for it. You know what I mean? But it should definitely be viewed as an impairment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about that and I, I agree. Um, but I think about those who work in like a smell related industry. And I, I do think that if they're dealing with anosmia or parosmia, for example, like a chef, they should That's absolutely qualify for disability 
I didn't even, you know, that's an excellent point. My feel, my husband is, um, he owns a pizza shop. <laughs> so now, like I said, he hasn't, he doesn't have the distorted smell. He has the loss of smell. Mm. So he actually runs into that daily, you know, with certain things like he, um, has to make sure certain foods, even though they may not be past their expiration date, if they look kind of, you know, a little funny. And then, you know, of course he's, you know, your next instinct would be to smell it. Right. To make sure, like, okay, it's not mm-hmm. past the expiration day, but it doesn't look that great to me. So let me smell it and see how it smells. And that's going to be my deciding factor. Well, he has to rely on his employees to do that because mm-hmm. he can't smell. So I do agree with you there. And it can, you know, and in, in that sense, it can surely affect your your means of um, financial. Yes, yeah. right. So, I mean, you've, you've hit on some really awesome points already, but I'm curious, is there anything that, you would like people who don't have parosmia to know about what it's like living with it? Um, I think just to be sensitive and understanding that, you know, obviously this isn't an excuse. This isn't somebody, you know, I have anxiety on a regular basis and I could be eccentric about things and all that, but that isn't this, this isn't me creating this in my mind. I wish it was, I thought it'd be easier to battle. I think. You know, I can take some anxiety meds and start to eat again, you know, but I just think it's really just trying to be understanding to the people that are telling you that this is happening to them and, you know, be supportive and and offer things that you can do to help, which might just be something as small as, hey, um, we're having a party. What foods can you eat so that I can make sure that I have something there for you, you mm. know, because the last thing you want to do is be isolated with this. Right. Um, disorder, which, you know, was the case for me in the beginning. And it was very depressive and very rough. And, and you know, I cried a lot and then I cry in front of my child and th- no mother wants to, their child to see them cry. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I guess just really being understanding and more so I'd l- rather speak to the medical community and say, please try to put some awareness on this and and get some knowledge out there, not just to ENTs, but to regular family physicians and OBGYNs so that people don't have to feel intimidated about speaking about this Mm -hmm. um, to their, to their um, medical professionals. Absolutely. And finally, to wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to share? No, I feel like I talked so much, (laughs) but I like, I'm very grateful for you. Um, because I, obviously I started after going through the Facebook, um, pages and, and getting involved on there. I then I'm an avid podcaster listener. So I looked that up and I found you and it was comforting just to hear other people's, um, you know, testimonies of what they're going through as well as your own. And, you know, I apologize that you go through what you go through as well. And I just hope that, I hope that, you know, someday we can get some kind of relief for all of us and that they really start looking at this as a, um, as an important sense, because, you know, there's a part of me that feels like, is this like natural selection? Are there going to just be a group of people that now only have four senses, Mm. you know, or three senses or whatever taste and smell is, is, is eradicated for certain people. So, you know, and it, that's, it's very, um, scary. It's a scary thought. It's a depressive thought. And I just really hope that our medical community will take this more seriously and and put a little more focus on it since they have it in the last amount of years. 
I agree. That's a really excellent way to end the conversation. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story about what you're dealing with. I think the overall goal, the ultimate thing with the podcast is just to really share stories so that people know that they're not alone, but it's also, like you said, to advocate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, advocate for awareness. So um, thank you so much for joining today and chatting with me. Absolutely. Thank you as well. And you enjoy the holidays with your family. Thank you. Thank you to Stephanie for coming on the podcast and sharing her parosmia story with all of us. I hope you recover from parosmia soon. I wanted to remind you all that you can send me a voicemail by clicking on the link in the episode notes. I'm going to share a recent voicemail that I received from Lauren Pector. Hello, my name is Lauren Pector. I lost my smell and taste in November 2020 when I first got COVID. I'm only 24 years old, so I never thought that something like this would happen to me, but um, here we are. I've, I've tried literally everything to help, such as smell therapy, steroids, any types of medications, and nothing has really helped except time. Um, it's gotten a little better, but I will say it's still not nearly as, uh, strong as it was in the past. And right now I've started a new smell therapy, so I'm hoping that it helps. But, uh, if you have any other resources, that would be great. Um, and thank you for creating this podcast. It's, it's much appreciated. Thanks for contacting the show, Lauren. And as far as resources go, I would recommend checking out the clinicaltrials.gov site to see if there are any relevant open trials that you can participate in if you're interested. Another recommendation is to check out PubMed to learn more about specific treatment options. You can type in the name of what you're looking for. An example would be anosmia and smell training, and it will provide you with peer-reviewed scientific articles for additional information. I hope that helps a bit, and I do hope that you recover soon. The Smell and Taste Association of North America, or STANA, is the first patient organization focused on smell and taste disorders in the USA. To find out more, you can visit STANA's website online at www.thestana.org. STANA is an official 501c3 nonprofit, so any donations are tax deductible. And we are still fundraising to help all of us who have smell and taste disorders, so please donate on our website if you can. Check out our latest series of programming called STANA Live Sensory Insights on Instagram, where we interview people from the world of taste and smell. You can visit our Instagram page to view all of the previous interviews. For any questions or if you'd like to get involved, please visit the website or email us at info at the Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Smell Podcast. Reviews are helpful because they allow others to find the show. If you'd like to financially support the podcast, you can do so by clicking on the link in the episode description. I appreciate your support. And a huge shout out to everyone who's currently contributing to the show because your generosity is what makes the podcast possible. Until next time, have a great day.